Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus and find chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through this second book of the Bible. Uh, we've a few sermons into this series, and we'll be looking at the last three verses of chapter 2 this morning, Exodus 2, 23 through 25 will be our text today. With the Word of God open, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Open the eyes of the hearts of each person here, that we might see the wonderful things about you that are contained in your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter, or excuse me, uh, Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, this is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. <clears throat> Just as a quick disclaimer, and I said this during the first service, and in, uh, they listened very well, um, I'm dipping my toes into waters that are much too deep for me here with my opening illustration. And so if this happens to be an area of your particular strength, feel free not to tell me after the service how bad I messed it up. <laughs> Math is a layered discipline. We all know that instinctively. Even those of us who aren't very good at it know that math is a layer discipline, that you need the foundational building blocks of math before you move on to the next level of math. And so I've been told by people much smarter than me, in order to do well at trigonometry, you need to have a mastery of geometry. Any of you out there want to nod in agreement with that statement? Good, okay, we're off to a good start. Uh, likewise, in order to do well at calculus, you need to have at least some apprehension of the basic formulas of algebra. More simply, for the rest of us, all the engineers now, go ahead and shut down. <laughs> if you want to do multiplication, you need to know how to do addition. And if you want to do division, you need to know how to do subtraction. And if you want to do addition and subtraction, you need to know how to count. And if you want to know how to count you need to know what numbers are. That's the foundation of all math. It doesn't matter what level of quantum something or other that you go to. You need to know how to count. You need to know what numbers are, first and foremost. And this passage before us this morning is a numbers passage in Scripture. It is so foundational to everything you need to know about God and about the Christian life that you cannot know God or understand the Christian life apart from a text like this. If you want to know how to interpret the Psalms, you need to think deeply about these three verses. If you want to understand the prophetic literature and why the exile and why the promises of a suffering servant and why the return from exile, this text is foundational. 
if you want to understand the incarnation and grasp why even God sent his son, this text is like numbers for you. But it's more than just doctrine. It's not just doctrinal. It's very practical. If you want to understand life in this fallen world and what it's like to live this side of glory, this text is instructional. If you want to think rightly about prayer and to grow in patient endurance, if you want to increase in your trust in the Lord more and more day by day, a text like these three verses, you need them. You need to store them up in your heart that you might know who God is and what he requires of you. That's how significant this text is for us as Christians. And this morning, I want us to see the reality of life in a fallen world, but the comfort that our covenant-keeping God brings to bear in the lives of his children. We're going to see plainly here the reality of life in a fallen world. Scripture does not sugarcoat the difficulties of life this side of heaven. But it does instruct us concerning the comfort that having a covenant-keeping God brings to bear in our life and in the situations we encounter. And as we consider these things, we'll look at three points from this text. And I should say at the outset that these three points ascend in significance as we go through them. Let me explain what I mean. Each of these points is important, but each one is more important than the last. And so I want you to be thinking about that now as I tell you what these points are, and then as we move through this text together, that each of these points builds on the other in increasing weightiness concerning who God is and how we're to live before Him. Number one, we'll see that our groaning lasts for years sometimes. Our groaning can last for years sometimes. But more important than that reality is that our prayers reach heaven every time. Our prayers reach heaven every time. And even more important than that, our God keeps his covenant all the time. It's the most important thing that we'll see is that God keeps his covenant. Well, immediately in this text, verse 23, we see that the Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses has died. It tells us that during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Now, this might seem like a throwaway phrase, a little historical anecdote. It's just, it's just letting us on to the scene in which we're viewing right now in Scripture. But we have to remember that God's economy of words in Scripture is perfect. There are no wasted words. And all of them, having been breathed out by God, are profitable for us for instruction and training in righteousness and so forth. So what's significant about the fact that the old king of Egypt has died? It's not just cueing us into the period of time that we're looking at. It's saying something about God's work in history. This is a small phrase, the king of Egypt died, which instructs us or informs us, enlightens us to the fact that God is working providentially behind the scenes to set the conditions for the next phase of his unfolding will. God continues to work behind the scenes in ways that are almost imperceptible to us in order to set the stage for the next phase of his redemptive history. Turn with me over to chapter 4. Chapter 4 in verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 4 in verse 19, God is telling Moses now to go back to Egypt to effect the redemption of his people. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. 
You see how God, like a master chess player, is moving things around in history, in the lives of individual people and groups of people, in order to accomplish his plan and purpose. And it's happening behind the scenes. We all die. It's no surprise that the Pharaoh who hated Moses is dead. But the fact that it's recorded in Scripture points us to the fact that God is in control of the redemption of his people. And he's setting the conditions for Moses' next move, which is to go back to Egypt. God is always working in our lives. He's always working in the world around us. And this little phrase, the king of Egypt died, is a reminder that God is using seemingly innocuous things to accomplish his will in the world and in our lives. Likewise, I think it's easy to miss what else it says in verse 23. During those many days, it says... Now, many days in verse 23 accounts for 40 years in the life of Israel. Many days, when you're my age, you might think of a couple weeks. You know, when you're elderly, you might say many days and mean a month or more. But for little kids, when they say many days, they mean like till the school day's over, right? It feels like eternity for them, doesn't it? Do you remember when you were young and it seemed like the week before Christmas took a whole year to get to? That's because it's such a huge percentage of your life, Right? But for us now, we see many days and might think, oh, okay, some time has passed. But if we were to jump ahead to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gives his, uh, his sermon in defense of his uh, love for Jesus Christ there, he tells us that Moses was 40 years old back in chapter 2, verse 11, when he went to visit his brothers in Egypt. And it tells us that 40 years passed before God sent him back to Israel or back to Egypt. 80 years goes by between the birth of Moses and the burning bush in chapter 3. And this verse 23 here says, during those many days, it means 40 years have gone by and Israel has been groaning the whole time. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned for 40 years under the yoke of slavery. The way that it's phrased suggests that even though the last pharaoh is dead, remember the last pharaoh is the one that ordered the murder of all the baby boys? You would think that after that guy is gone, life might get a little better. He seems to be the worst of the worst. But after he's gone, it's so bad that the people cry out for rescue and groan all day long under oppression. That's how bad it is for them. You know, I'm sure you're aware that the promise of relief often brings hope. The promise that the end is around the corner, that relief is coming, often brings hope for us. Uh, If you've gone to one of those local torture centers that are popping up around our communities, also known as CrossFit gyms, you'll know what I mean about the, 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 the hope that this is almost over gives you the energy and motivation to do a little bit more. If you see the clock on the wall ticking down, there's only 30 seconds left. Well, you can keep your knees high for 30 more seconds. You can do two or three more reps if you know the end is right around the corner. The hope of relief gives us energy, endurance, and hope. But the opposite is likewise true. The fact that we don't know that there's any relief around the corner brings great despair sometimes, doesn't it? The fact that we don't know what tomorrow might bring or what the outcome of this will be can cause us to feel beaten down and worn out by life. Have you ever had this experience? It's one thing to know that you'll have reparative surgery in two weeks and then some PT afterwards. 
It's another to question whether or not the chemo will even touch your cancer. Those are two totally different worlds to live in. And sometimes our groaning lasts for a long time. Forty years for the people of Israel. Imagine a 40-year-long CrossFit workout. Israel was groaning. They were suffering. Their size had reached a fever pitch. After one bad Pharaoh had died, you could hear them just waiting to see who would be next. Maybe he'll be the one that will lighten our load. He'll be the one that will make life easier for us. He'll be the one to restore our religious freedoms. He'll fix our economy and help our tax situation. What happens when he doesn't? How do God's people respond when that doesn't happen? And in this case, it didn't happen. They cry out to God because we can't see the deliverance of God around the corner. Only he can. And so we're forced by providence to rest in him alone, to trust God and to cry out in prayer, which is the only thing that we can do. At some point, their sound of grief created this great symphony of sighs that reaches up to heaven. Forty years plus the other 400 that they had already been enslaved for prior to this. Doesn't it seem a bit extreme for them to be there for that long, 400 plus years? Aren't they ready to be delivered yet? Isn't God ready to deliver them yet? Have you ever asked, Lord, aren't you ready to act yet? How long, O Lord, will you forget me, the psalmist says? How long will my tears be my food day and night, he cries. If you've read the Bible, I'm sure you've seen that oftentimes seasons of difficulty play out like this in Scripture. Joseph is in prison for 10 years or so. In Judges, we read of seasons of oppression that last 8 or 18 or 20 years. Jesus heals a man who was born blind and lived into adulthood with that condition. Peter, in Acts chapter 3, tells a man who was crippled from birth, and we understand later in chapter 4 that he was over 40 years old when Peter healed him. Job has 42 chapters all dealing with the miserable suffering of loss. Why? Because suffering in real life takes time, doesn't it? It takes time. It often lasts for a while, and our groanings last for years sometimes. But we need to remember that we're not alone and that we're not forgotten. We aren't the first of God's children to suffer. And that's not meant to imply that misery loves company, and so if the rest of them could, so too can we. It simply means that God is in the business of working things out according to his timing and not ours. And sometimes a day to him is like a thousand years to us. But God has not forgotten his people. Even when it feels like our suffering is lasting for years, we know that our prayers reach heaven every day time. God has not failed to hear us. He is not ignoring us even when our sighs rise up to the heavens. We need to remember that we have not been forgotten. This central theme of the text right here in verse 23 and 24, they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God and God heard their groaning. This is a central theme in all of scripture, isn't it? God hears the prayers of his people, even when it seems to us like he's being silent. Even though our groaning may last for years sometimes, our prayers reach God every time. Every time God hears his, 
hears the prayers of his people. The book of Psalms is filled with references to this reality. In Psalm chapter 10, we hear the psalmist cry out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Is that you today? Do you feel like the psalmist here in chapter 10 or the Israelites in Egypt crying out to God for relief? Why, O Lord, is it taking so long? Why is he or she still not repentant? Why is my marriage still difficult? Why am I not yet married? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? But don't miss how the Psalms end. The psalmist cries out to God with confidence in who God is, which is why he's able to end his psalms by saying, O Lord, you do hear the desire of the afflicted, and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice. The psalmist knows who God is, and so he knows that his prayers reach him because of who he is. And God hears the cries of his children. Psalm 13, much the same, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But he ends by saying, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There's no doubt there that God is hearing his prayers. It's all over the Psalter. It's all over Scripture. This is the pattern of Scripture that we cry out in our affliction and God hears. It's the pattern in Scripture because that should be the pattern that marks our lives. The Bible wants you, God wants you through his word here to see that when you are in times of great need, you cry out to God and he hears. To be reminded that while we are beaten down and oppressed and crying out to rescue, God will hear you. God heard their groaning. How much comfort is contained in those four little words? God heard they're groaning. It's a glimpse into the throne of heaven. We're being given a glimpse, a sneak peek behind the curtain, if you will, into the throne room of heaven. If God had not revealed to us what he does in heaven and how he responds to us, the best we could do is wish. I hope this prayer breaks through the ceiling. Maybe I'll go outside today because it doesn't seem to be working. But God has revealed the goings-on of his throne room. He's told us exactly what he's doing in heaven when we pray to him. And do you know what the Bible tells us? It tells us that he's listening, that God is listening to us when we pray. This is a sneak peek that takes us from the land of make-believe, I wish that God would hear, I hope that maybe he does, to the land of reality that says, I know that my God hears my voice like a father hears the cry of his son outside when he falls in the driveway and scuffs his knee. God hears more clearly than that, and he's able to act with far more power and comfort than you and I are with some Neosporin and a little bandage. That's who God is. We don't hope that he hears. We know because he's revealed to us in his word that this is his nature. God heard their groans. It's as one Puritan writer said it, when we pray to God, we're like little children who try to grab a bouquet of flowers from the garden for our mother. And when we come inside, the Holy Spirit sees the bouquet of flowers filled with, uh, with blades of grass and with little weeds that are mixed up in it. And he pulls all those pieces out and he presents us back with a prayer that's perfect in the sight of God. And even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays alongside of us, Romans chapter 8 tells us. 
The Spirit helps our prayers on the way up to heaven, and so God hears each and every one of them. Do you know that God hears your prayers? I mean, really know it. Not does it feel like God hears your prayers, or not are you pleased with His timing and the answers He's given. The question that you need to ask yourself is, do you know that God hears your prayers? Do you know it? Every one of them. Do you know that He hears your prayers, or do you sometimes feel like you've tried to approach Him in prayer and found the door to His throne room closed to you? I'm sure you're familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian. Edwards would spend up to 13 hours a day in his study. It's earned him the unfortunate and unfair moniker of an ivory tower theologian. People thought that Edwards was unapproachable because he spent so much time not caring for things of the world. His wife was legitimately left to be concerned with all the affairs of their home as Edwards would spend up to 13 hours a day in study. But what many people don't know is that Jonathan Edwards had the doors to his study taken off their hinges. That way his children, at any point during the day, could walk freely into his study and observe him in deep meditation and contemplation of God's Word and to talk with them about anything that was on their hearts. While Jonathan Edwards was busy writing about theology and preparing sermons, he was never too busy to hear the cries of his children for their daddy. That's who Jonathan Edwards was. And we have a God who is far greater than Jonathan Edwards, the door of whose throne room is flung wide open for his children to come walking in whenever we need mercy and grace in our time of need. That's why Israel cried out to him. That's why we pray. That's why we pray with confidence because God hears our prayers. And more than just hearing our prayers, it would be enough if God simply heard our prayers. Wouldn't it be enough for you to know that the king of the universe hears your unique particular voice and every syllable that you pray to him and he responds to it according to his perfect will? Isn't that enough? The Bible says much more than that to us. It says that he delights in our prayers. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 18, the Bible tells us that he hates the sacrifices of the wicked, but delights in the prayers of his people. God delights in your prayer. Think about that for a second. It's not just that he hears you because he's obliged to listen and because he can hear everything. It's that when you pray to God, young children, when you pray to God, when you ask the Lord for mercy and for grace and for help, when you pray and thank Him for the blessings that He's given you in your life, He hears your voice and He loves, He delights that you're talking to Him. One of my favorite poems in all the world, I can hardly read it all the way through, is a poem about the delight of a father whose children come to him in the midnight hours to play with him. It's called The Children's Hour by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Between the dark and the daylight, when the night is beginning to lower, comes a pause in the day's occupations that is known as the children's hour. I hear in the chamber above me the patter of little feet, the sound of a door that is opened, and voices soft and sweet. From my study I see in the lamplight descending the broad hall stair, grave Alice, 
and laughing Allegra and Edith with her golden hair. A whisper, and then silence. Yet I know by their merry eyes they are plotting and planning together to take me by surprise. A sudden rush from the stairway, a sudden raid from the hall. By three doors left unguarded, they enter my castle wall. They climb up into my turret over the arms and the back of my chair. And if I try to escape, they surround me. They seem to be everywhere. They almost devour me with kisses. Their arms about me entwine till I think of the Bishop of Bingen and his mouse tower on the Rhine. Do you think, O blue-eyed banditti, because you have scaled the wall, such an old mustache as I am is not a match for you all? I have you fast in my fortress and will not let you depart, but put you down into the dungeon in the round tower of my heart, and there I will keep you forever, yes, forever and for a day, till the walls shall crumble to ruin and molder and dust away. That's the love of a father who delights in the affection and attention of his sweet children. And this pales in comparison to the delight that our God in heaven has when we, his children, come to him in prayer, trusting in him, knowing that he keeps his promises. That's who God is for us. He always keeps his door open to hear the prayers of his people. He delights in his prayers. And so we pray, and we pray with confidence, not because our prayers are so great, but because God always keeps his covenant all the time. And that's our last point for this morning, verses 24 and 25. God keeps his covenant all the time. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew. <clears throat> Three things to note here under this point. First of all, God did not hear their prayers because of their piety. Make no mistake. God did not hear the prayers of Israel because of their piety. Uh, while they're suffering in Egypt, what we know from other passages of Scripture is that they're also adopting all of the wicked habits of the Egyptians. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the Lord is speaking concerning his exile of the people of Israel and why he's going to do it. And he says that they did not let go of all the idols of the Egyptians that they had brought out with them. Throughout their relationship with the Lord, and even back here in Exodus chapter 2, they were worshiping falsely. They certainly were not being faithful to God. They certainly were not pious in their religious behaviors and practices. They were wicked, sinfully idolatrous people in the land of Egypt. They had taken upon themselves all of the detestable things that the Egyptians did. And so he didn't hear their prayers because they were worthy or because of their piety. What does the Lord say in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verses 6 through 8? He says, I didn't rescue you because you were so great or so numerous. I did it because of my own mercy. And so lest we convince ourselves that the way to earn a hearing with God is to pray a certain kind of way or to have a certain kind of, uh, of piety, that that's what will make God listen to us, be warned that God does not hear us because we're super faithful and he doesn't fail to hear us because we happen to be super sinful. He hears us because he always keeps his covenant. When the people of Israel cried out to God, it wasn't because they deserved to be heard. 
And it wasn't because they earned a hearing with God. Just like Job, we can't plead our own holiness. We can only plead the righteousness of Christ. We only come into the presence of God because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who was given as a new covenant for us. And so when we come to God, we come to him because of his covenant, because he keeps his promises. It's interesting, look in verse 23 with me, where it says that the people cried out for help at the end of verse 23 there, the end of that first sentence. They cried out for help. That phrase carries legal implications with it. That they were crying out for help because God had made promises to them. They were bringing him to court, such as it were. And not in a disrespectful or presumptuous way, but they were laying hold of the promises of God by faith and with confidence that he had said he would rescue them, that he had put a timeline on their suffering, and they were getting close, like Daniel does towards the end of the exile. He knows it's getting close. And so they were praying the promises of God to him because they knew that he keeps his covenant. You could hear them saying, Lord, you made promises to our Father, and now hear our cry that your promises might come to pass for us. And so when we pray, we need to pray with confidence that God remembers his promises as we pray the promises of God back to him. What better thing for us to cry out to the Lord than the very words he's given us in Scripture? When it says here in verse 24 that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant, we might well say this, God heard their groaning because he remembered his covenant with them. Because he was in a relationship with the people of Israel, he heard their prayers and they ascended to his ears. And we could rightly insert that statement into every other promise fulfilled in Scripture. God heard their groaning because he remembered his covenant God sent his son because he remembered his covenant. God forgave you of your sins because he remembered his covenant. And this promise, this reality that God remembers his covenant will serve as the catalyst for everything else that we'll read in Scripture. Everything else is rooted in this truth, that God has made promises to his people which he will never violate. Sometimes suffering lasts for years, but every time we pray, God hears, and he responds in faithfulness to his covenant. By the way, God did not forget his covenant. Uh, it says that God here remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not meant to suggest that God was resting in heaven, having been a couple hundred years removed from Abraham, and the prayers of the people came up and kind of elbowed him in the side, and he went, oh, that's right, it's getting close to that time. Let's get to work. Let's find, send that burning bush down to Moses so we can get him back to Egypt to rescue the people of Israel. There was no nudge on behalf of the people through their prayer. When it says that God remembered his covenant, it simply means that he is now at the appointed time at which he will take action according to his promise. There was not an alarm in heaven that went off. The phone didn't ring and God didn't pick it up, surprised that he had uh, almost missed his appointment. When it says that God remembered, it's a covenantal term. That means he is now ready to take action according to the promise that he had made. God never forgets his promises. He never forgets. We're the ones that need reminded often, very often, that God keeps his promises towards us, don't we? 
And the scriptures tell us here that he heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. In relationship to the covenant that he had made with them, their groaning had meaning. Because he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob certain things that he was bound to keep for them. When we feel like God is far away as the Israelites did and as the psalmist often does, we need to remember that he never forgets. He doesn't need reminding. It's simply that he has ordained prayer as the means by which his promises are brought into reality for us. And so we pray. And the last thing we'll say from this point here is that God is not simply aware from a distance. Look at verse 25 with me. Such a short and powerful verse. God saw the people of Israel. Now, if it stopped there, that could be God standing way back here in heaven, looking across the horizon and seeing the Israelites and being aware of their situation over there. And some people think of God that way. Maybe you think of God that way. He's up in heaven somewhere and he looks down through his big binoculars and he sees us like little ants down here trying to figure out how to get over the obstacles. And from time to time, he reaches his big hand down and brushes the obstacle out of the way so we can go about our business. That's seeing. We can see all sorts of things that are going on by looking at them with our eyes open. And there's nothing intimate about that reality. It's simply objective. But God's awareness of his people's condition is not simply objective. It says to us that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now that word knew there, or to know, is a Hebrew word that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the single most intimate form of communication that a husband and wife can have exclusively together in the covenant of marriage. In Genesis chapter 4, it tells us that Adam knew his wife, and the result of that was she conceived and bore a child. It's the most intimate form of communion and communication and knowledge that two people can have with each other exclusively in the covenant confines of marriage. And the Bible tells us that when we are in trouble, God doesn't simply objectively see, he knows. It's almost like he takes on flesh and enters into our condition with us, isn't it? God knew. My friends, God knows you in all of your needs, in all of your weaknesses, in all of your troubles. God knows. He's not some disinterested deity out there beyond space. He's here. He's with his people. And he has compassion on us. He has compassion Look at the next chapter. We'll come to this in two weeks. God speaks to Moses to send him back explicitly to rescue the people because of their cry, because he has compassion. He takes action because he loves us. That's what the covenant is. It's God's love for his people. We are his people forever, and he is our God. And he knows everything that we need before we even ask him. He knows us just like he knew Israel. This is the covenant-keeping God of the Bible. 
He's a God who always hears us in Christ. Our prayers always reach heaven. He never forgets or fails to keep his promises. And he knows our situation as one who became like one of us, took on the form of a man, lived among us in order to address our greatest need. And as we close, there's perhaps no more important thing to say than this. This is a free extra point for you as we prepare to wrap up our time this morning. God heard their groaning. And by the way, they didn't deserve it because they were living in sin. And God remembered his covenant that he had made with their forefathers, not because they were faithfully worshiping or because they had cleaned up their act, but because he is a covenant-keeping God. God remembered his covenant, and he saw the people of Israel, and he knew. You know what this is teaching us? This teaches us that the gospel comes first. The law is 20 pages away. The gospel comes first. God sees people, sinners who are in need of a Savior, and He doesn't wait for them to rescue themselves from Egypt. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. He doesn't wait for us to become holy enough or pious enough or to break our addictions or to mend all of our relationships or to act a certain way or look a certain way or change a certain thing before He offers us rescue in Christ Jesus. You can't law your way to God. The Israelites couldn't do it. You and I can't do it. And we can't make other people like our children do it, parents. The law has a purpose, and I don't mean to diminish that, but we need to be reminded of this. The gospel comes first. God rescues his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and then brings them to a place of worship and says, and now because I have given you the gospel, I want you to live this way before me. Do you need to remember that today? The gospel comes first. God sent his son that anyone who believes, not anyone who straightens their messed up life out, but anyone who believes to all who call upon his name, they'll experience the salvation that he alone can offer. The gospel comes first, my friends, and it's one of the most central truths of the Bible, along with the fact that God keeps his covenant. And we see both of those here in this text. Perhaps you know what suffering feels like, and maybe it feels like it's been lasting forever. You need to remember the God that cannot ignore you, whose covenant means that he will hear your prayers. And because of the covenant he made with you through his son, Jesus Christ, he will act, perhaps not in the time that you want him to, but in his perfect time. And if you're here this morning, apart from Christ, if you're still enslaved to your sin, Please hear what God says to you in the scriptures, that the gospel comes first. He calls you to come to his son in faith and humility. And the gospel is very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your covenant. We thank you for the gospel. We delight to know that you hear our prayers and that you take pleasure in the prayers of your people. Would you make us a praying people, confident, Lord, in your promises, praying boldly according to your word and trusting that your timing is never slow, but always perfect, even when it takes 40 years. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.